What do John Roberts, Samuel Alito, Neil Gorsuch, and Brett Kavanaugh all have in common? Brett Kavanaugh was really the second judicial nominee that you successfully ushered through. Both Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh you were very involved with. But the Federal Society has also been involved in two other successful Republican appointments to the Supreme Court, both Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Alito. How did you end up in the position of directing and guiding and advising the President of the United States on his judicial appointees? I have no idea. (laughs) That was Leonard Leo. Had you heard of him before just now? He's never won an election, started a major company, or gone to war. But Leo's actions will have an impact on all of us for decades, if not for a lifetime. Leonard Leo is a a conservative movement activist who served as the longtime vice president of the Federalist Society, which is a nonprofit that organizes conservative and libertarian lawyers across the country. Leo has also had a second life as a Uh, behind-the-scenes activist who's been coordinating efforts to reshape the federal judiciary and install conservative judges at the state, federal, and Supreme Court levels. That's right. A guy whose name is basically Leo Leo, a conservative Catholic working at a largely anonymously funded nonprofit, has engineered a transformation of America's courts. But you might be thinking, I don't have any trials coming up. Why do I care about the courts? Do judges even get to wear wigs still? The courts have incredible power over our lives. And, you know, there is a movement to put judges in place to develop a set of legal thinkers who are animated by a desire to restrict people's access to bodily autonomy, to restrict the vote for black and brown people, to expel immigrants from this country. Um, And it's being done under the auspices of an intellectual movement around legal thought. Um, But in reality, it's exploiting a system of power that has long been used to hurt Black people, people of color, indigenous people, LGBTQ people, disabled people, and ensuring that those people who have been the target of so much violence and discrimination remain outside the systems of power. Who benefits from keeping people out of systems of power? Well, the people who benefit from the current arrangement of things. Leonard Leo and the Federalist Society represent a small group of plutocrats who want to own the court system to advance their own economic and social agenda to the detriment of everybody else. In short, it's a very coordinated effort that's very, very well funded, mostly by anonymous donors, to to do what it takes to sway the nation's courts. If they get control of the nation's courts, they're going to be able to set a cultural and political agenda And their goal is to turn the country back, um, maybe by 100 years, to create a society driven by free markets, driven by uh, a society where the border between uh, religion and government become fuzzier. They would like the Bible to be a guiding force in American life. The most conservative people in this movement seem to believe that it's entirely appropriate for them to impose a worldview and a 
religious view on the country. And I think earnestly believe that it's the best thing for the country to uh, to go back to sort of more old fashioned values. Leo said this facetiously when addressing the Federalist Society at a dinner honoring Justice Antonin Scalia's 20th anniversary on the court. It is a pleasure to stand before 1,500 of the most little known and elusive of that secret society or conspiracy we call the Federalist Society. But it really kind of is a conspiracy, except not a conspiracy like QAnon. It's real. When you get into a story like the Leonard Leo Network, it becomes very complex. And it's in some ways, I think for some people, hard to believe that there's something as organized as this that operates, generally speaking, below the radar. Shady, well-financed networks operating under the radar to the detriment of us all? Systems of power? Guys in robes? That's all my favorite stuff. So, who is Leonard Leo? I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is, the podcast from Now This, where we examine power through the stories of people who have it. In the 1960s, the Supreme Court was having a run of monumental cases, legalizing interracial marriage nationwide, granting people in police custody the right to an attorney, tossing out state bans on contraception, and making it clear that states couldn't impose religion in public school education. In the middle of all this... 1965, Leonard Leo is born. Leo's father died when Leo was young, and he and his mother moved in with his grandparents. His mother later remarried to an electrical engineer she met while working as a secretary at a firm on Long Island. The family relocated to New Jersey, where Leo's half-brother was born. Leo's story is weirdly intertwined with the story of the conservative legal movement. And the story of the movement is, in some ways, Leo's story, and the story of how we got to where we are today. Not everybody was happy about what was going on at the Supreme Court in the 1960s. Here's Robert O'Hara, an investigative reporter who's been at the Washington Post for 30 years. Well, let's go back a little bit uh, to understand what's happening this very day with the Supreme Court, you really have to go back to the Nixon administration and a conservative named Lewis Powell, who was going to quickly become a Supreme Court justice, who wrote a seminal uh, memo to the Chamber of Commerce, laying out uh, what he thought needed to be done to counter the left slash progressive movement of the 60s. The Powell memo. It was a confidential letter unearthed by the Washington Post in the 1970s. It was written by then-corporate lawyer Lewis Powell at the behest of the United States Chamber of Commerce and offered a strategic framework for how business-minded conservatives might fight back against New Deal-era reform and regulation, and liberalism generally. Here's Caroline Fredrickson, who's done a lot of things. I'm Caroline Fredrickson. I am a visiting professor at Georgetown Law as well as a senior fellow at the Brennan Center. I was the president of the American Constitution Society. I ran the ACLU's legislative arm, and I worked on Capitol Hill and in the Clinton White House. I was chief of staff to Maria Cantwell and deputy chief of staff to Tom Daschle, and spent a lot of years up there in the Senate. Back to the Powell memo. 
Lewis Powell is such an interesting character because people think about him now as not exactly a moderate, but a more moderate Republican appointee than, you know, some of the ones we have now. But when he was appointed, he had been um, at a Richmond, Virginia law firm, and his main clients were, were big tobacco. And this guy was a big tobacco lawyer and very active with the Chamber of Commerce. He served on a bunch of their committees. And in the early 70s, he was aghast at some of the success that particularly consumer rights and labor rights advocates had had in the court system. Ralph Nader was a particular target of his ire. That's right. Before Ralph Nader spoiled an election, he was a major consumer advocate and wrote an important book in 1965, Unsafe at Any Speed, The Designed-In Dangers of the American Automobile, which exposed safety issues in the cars of the time and the industry's reluctance to fix them. Ralph Nader, who'd been litigating against the car companies um, because of the very dangerous products they were putting on the market and people's cars were blowing up, the Pinto and other examples. Um, uh, and so Lewis Powell uh, wrote this very uh, influential memo to the Chamber of Commerce and said, you know, we need to build a conservative legal movement. Powell wrote, quote, The assault on the enterprise system is broadly based and consistently pursued. It is gaining momentum and converts. The sources are varied and diffused. They include, not unexpectedly, the communists, new leftists, and other revolutionaries who would destroy the entire system, both political and economic, end quote. He recommended, in, in short, trying to gain control of a whole array of institutions, including trying to influence universities. He recommended creating um, all sorts of groups that would put out intellectual content to support the conservative movement. And one of the biggest, most important targets was to try to get control um, of the federal courts and the Supreme Court. I'm going to read a little more of the Powell memo. Quote, American business and the enterprise system have been affected as much by the courts as by the executive and legislative branches of government. Under our constitutional system, especially with an activist-minded Supreme Court, the judiciary may be the most important instrument for social, economic, and political change. End quote. People listened. The letter is credited with being the impetus for organizations like the Heritage Foundation, the Cato Institute, the American Legislative Exchange Council, all the shadowy groups we've been telling you about for 30 straight episodes. Powell, the guy who wrote the memo, eventually made it onto the Supreme Court, nominated by President Richard Nixon, who had his own whole B story going on. Watergate. Towards the climax of that whole thing, a bungled burglary and cover-up gone wrong, Nixon ordered his attorney general to fire the special prosecutor investigating Watergate. Not good. His attorney general refused and resigned. So did the deputy attorney general. But luckily, there was someone with fewer scruples available. Solicitor General Robert Bork. Bork, with the resignations, had suddenly become one of the highest-ranking officials in the Justice Department and proceeded with firing the special prosecutor per Nixon's orders. It was called the Saturday Night Massacre. Flash forward, 1987. Powell is retiring from the Supreme Court, and President Ronald Reagan needs to nominate someone to take his place. He nominates Bork, the axe-wielder in the metaphoric Saturday Night Massacre. Time and again, in his public record over more than a quarter of a century, 
Robert Bork has shown that he is hostile to the rule of law and the role of the courts in protecting individual liberty. He is instinctively biased against the claims of the average citizen and in favor of concentrations of power, whether that is governmental or private. And in conflicts between the legislative and executive branches of government, he has repeatedly expressed a clear contempt for Congress. It is easy to conclude from the public record of Mr. Bork's published views that he believes women and blacks are second-class citizens under the Constitution. In Robert Bork's America, there is no room at the end for blacks and no place in the Constitution for women. And in our America, there should be no seat on the Supreme Court for Robert Bork. That's Senator Ted Kennedy, you know, John's brother, in what is probably one of the most scathing takedowns in Senate history. Bork is completely rejected by the Senate for his far-right views. But with all this new free time he has not being on the Supreme Court, not Justice Bork decided to get into some extracurricular activities, and some prep school kids at Yale and University of Chicago were starting a debate club, the Federalist Society the organization that Leonard Leo would go on to run. More after this. Life is not like a box of chocolates, because you always know what you're going to get. Moneyed interests manipulating the government in secret. Leonard Leo is really, you know, it's, it's so interesting because he is, he's like Forrest Gump or something. You know, he shows up at every important uh, moment for the right-wing legal movement. But unlike Forrest Gump, you know, this is, it's because Leonard Leo's really been playing an instrumental role. In 1982, Leo headed to Cornell for college, where he studied government. It was, he told the Washington Examiner, quote, less the sort of amorphous psychological science aspects of politics, and more how is our constitutional system structured? What are the institutions of government? End quote. He'd work as a research assistant with none other than Ann Coulter. Yes, that Ann Coulter for Professor Jeremy Rabkin, who is now at the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University. Remember how I said this story had all my favorite things? At the time, the Federalist Society was sprouting branches at elite schools across the country, and Leo, who stays on at Cornell for law school, starts a chapter. Imagine how much different America would be if he just started smoking weed instead. The law students aren't doing it alone. They have advisors, like Robert Bork, the guy who carried out Nixon's bidding, and Antonin Scalia, probably the most well-known Antonin outside of Italy. Scalia, of course, would get on the Supreme Court. I am one of a, a small uh, number of judges, a small number of anybody, judges, professors, lawyers, uh, who are known as originalists. Our manner of interpreting the Constitution is to begin with the text and to give that text the meaning that it bore when it was adopted by the people. That was Justice Scalia. Here's Caroline Fredrickson. What they claim uh, to believe is um, that uh, judges should just interpret the law as, as written, or rather, they should just apply the law as written. They should adhere to an understanding of the Constitution that, uh, that was, uh, as it was understood by the, by the people at, at the time the Constitution was adopted, a so-called originalism. 
the sort of shorthands for um, their uh, expressed ideology is originalism, textualism, and strict construction, which is all a way of giving license for them to impose their own views on the law by claiming that somehow um, this is what James Madison would have intended. This is not a philosophy podcast, no matter how much I wish it was. But Caroline Fredrickson has some serious doubts about all this stuff. What these theories allow is an amazing amount of self-interest to come into an interpretation of the law and a disregard of the way the law has traditionally been interpreted, which is through looking at precedent and how prior judges have seen the, the law and how and sort of the impact of that uh, of that sort of set of understandings. Instead, they say we can throw all that out. It doesn't matter what a court has held in the past because we think we know better because in 1789, they would have understood due process to mean X, Y, and Z. All of constitutional law is based on interpretation of the Constitution. No one's doing seances to bring back James Madison. So even originalism is ultimately interpretation. We can't know what the framers of the Constitution thought and they aren't a monolith. They were a lot of people who believed a lot of different things. It's a very destabilizing kind of philosophy in many ways that the idea that even though for 200 years people have generally understood something to mean X, that they can go back to 1789 and find that it means Y and therefore everything, the whole other, you know, sort of legal structure can crumble because I, Clarence Thomas, or I, you know, whatever, think that I know better what the framers intended. And you know, and the other thing that's really, that's, it's not just destabilizing, uh, but it's also a, um, a historical, is that um, nobody can prove that this is the way the Constitution is meant to be understood. We could go on and on about originalism, um, but let's just, you know, I think that the, what, what, what people need to really understand is that it's, it's, it's a political messaging theory that allows conservatives to have a veneer of neutrality um, to import all of their political preferences into legal understanding. Then there's textualism, the idea that you take the text at face value, not considering any context, just reading what was written literally, like a demented Amelia Bedelia. It's a messaging device. Honestly, it could be used by both sides. And you, Lena Kagan at one point said that, you know, we're all textualists now. Well, everybody reads the text. Um, you know, there's a debate about which words you look at. How many words in a statute do you look at? Just the phrase that's being. I mean, there's a, there's there's any number of ways of being a textualist and coming up with a different answer. It's a highly flexible doctrine that can be used sometimes in ways that I think we would find compelling and um, in ways that we would find completely horrifying. It's a vessel into which you can pour different content. Can you seriously run a government in 2020 based off the literal letter of the law of a quarter of a millennia ago? Issues like health care make their way to the Supreme Court. What the fuck does James Madison know about pre-existing conditions? Anyway, back to the story. Leo graduates from Cornell with a law degree in 1989 and does entry-level lawyer work for Judge Arthur Raymond Randolph, who was Bork's deputy in the 1970s. Seriously. Judge Randolph, by the way, is still on the bench today. Leo is about to take a job at the Federalist Society, but hits it off with future lifelong friend and lifetime member of the Supreme Court, Clarence Thomas, who he supported through his confirmation. We don't have time to get into this here, but there's a movie and a documentary about it. Thomas had allegedly sexually harassed Anita Hill, 
but made it onto the court anyway. Here's Leo in 1995 at a Federalist Society event. I met Justice Thomas in September 1990 as a law clerk on the D.C. Circuit. Curious as it may seem, one of the first things I noticed upon entering his office was a small statue of St. Jude, who for centuries has been known to many as the patron saint of seemingly hopeless causes. At least for me, this little statue had tremendous symbolic significance, and I thought it said something very important about Justice Thomas's character and outlook on life. My great-grandmother, who was crippled and in great pain for the last 30 years of her life, had a similar statue in her bedroom. Glancing at the statue, she always used to instruct my brother and I that St. Jude ought to remind us of the ability of the human spirit, the individual soul, to triumph over the challenges and troubles that we face in our lives. Perhaps it should not have been a surprise then that Justice Thomas would play some of the same inspirational role that my great-grandmother did. Leo is a devout Catholic who goes to church as often as every day. I don't think you can go more often than that. He starts to get his first real power and notoriety working as a Catholic strategist with the Republican Party and the W. Bush White House, helping the party mobilize Catholics and get out the Catholic vote. It worked. For example, in 2004, the Bush-Cheney ticket won Catholics by a wider margin than they'd won Catholics in 2000. John Kerry, who they beat, is Catholic. Leo told the New York Times a few days after the 2004 presidential election, quote, In both Ohio and Florida, the Catholic vote helped carry the president across the finish line, end quote. Leo is good at what he does. But Catholics weren't the only thing that got Bush across the finish line four years earlier in 2000. Ralph Nader helped, remember him? But the close election wound up in the hands of the Supreme Court. Yeah, Bush v. Gore literally handed the presidency to George W. Bush. That's the power of the Supreme Court. And it's not just the Supreme Court. There's an entire federal bench that on a daily basis handles tons of cases you rarely hear anything about. This is where Leo comes in. In eight years, Bill Clinton appointed 378 federal judges. George W. Bush, 327 and Obama 329. So far, in three years and change, Donald Trump has appointed 218. These are lifetime appointments, by the way. There was a guy LBJ appointed still serving in 2018. Almost all of Trump's appointments, if not every one of them, is a member of the Federalist Society, which seems like a mighty big coincidence, because Leo told NBC News in 2004, quote, We're not, as an institution, consulted about judicial selections. We don't advance particular candidates for federal judicial office. We don't support or oppose nominees. And we don't directly lobby on the Hill for a nominee. End quote. More on how Leo doesn't do that after this. It's 2007. Nearly 2,000 lawyers are gathered in Union Station in Washington, D.C. at a black tie gala. Everybody's there. George W. Bush, Antonin Scalia, Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, John Roberts, by video. It's a Federalist Society dinner, and nobody is more in the mix than, at the time, executive vice president of the organization, Leonard Leo. Eight unhappy years would follow. Eight years of Barack Obama. But Leonard Leo was becoming well-known as a serious player. Leo was known uh, by uh, people who pay attention, close attention to these issues, 
He's been in the mix uh, for many years, working very intimately with the early Bush administrations. One of his contacts in the Bush administration, the second Bush administration, was someone we now know as the Supreme Court Justice Kavanaugh. But Leo's long served as an activist and, and to insiders, he's well known as an increasingly influential figure over the years. That's Robert O'Hara. We became interested in Leonard Leo uh, more than a year ago uh, because he kept popping up as someone that seemed to be involved uh, at state levels. Uh, we, uh, like everybody else in Washington, had heard that he was President Trump's outside judicial advisor. We felt there was more going on, and we have the privilege here at the Post of having more time to sort of get behind the curtain and find out, you know, what what is he doing? What is his influence? Who is he speaking for when he whispers to the president? And that's what drew us to uh, write about him. What does Leonard Leo do? What he does at its most basic is get involved with uh, a huge array of groups. Sometimes he's on the paperwork and other times he's uh, just a guiding voice. And, and in effect, he's an organizer. He's a very smart guy. He's well-trained as a lawyer, uh, did not have sort of a traditional law practice, but instead turned his attention toward a, what really amounts to, I believe for him, a righteous cause that is by his own words, uh, driven by his, his faith, which is a conservative version of Catholicism. During the 2016 Republican primary, Donald Trump released a list of judges, Federalist Society Selected, in a move that helped him win support among more traditional conservatives who didn't want to vote for a scandalous reality TV star. Some of the people listening to this are probably wrestling with the notion that a very hard right, very conservative, dedicated principled conservatives have embraced a man as president who does not exemplify traditional religious conservative values. And they've done that rather openly because he's delivering them scores of appointees, hundreds of appointees across the nation who are going to decide the fate of laws that are anathema to conservatives, including Roe v. Wade. They, in fact, through the Trump administration, are having um, unprecedented success in uh, gaining control of federal courts across the country and, of course, the Supreme Court. Leonard Leo truly brings together all aspects of conservatism into one judicial machine. So what is this machine and how does it work? Uh, the, the context of the Leo network is very, very important. His network, which we only described uh, in a way a part of it, is a, a microcosm of something much larger that's been happening in the nation for the last 20 years plus. And that is that the use of nonprofits and particularly charities has become uh, a standard model for influence. My reporting over many years has found that, in fact, political advocates across the, the, the spectrum, left and right, along with corporations and other entities, including foreign powers, are using these nonprofits as platforms for really what you could call not just influence, but in some cases, propaganda. 
Which brings us to the Federalist Society, one of a handful of charities that makes up the LEO network. The Federalist Society um, is a uh, what's known as a 501c3 charity. That means that donations to the Federalist Society are tax-exempt, and it also means it can operate as a tax-exempt organization. As a charity, it has to be nonpartisan according to IRS regulations and rules, and it can't directly intervene for or against a, a, a political candidate running for office. It can be a a place of ideas, and that's in fact what it says it is. It's a, it's a space for primarily conservative and libertarian lawyers to thrash through ideas, to have meetings, and so on. Um, and it's clear that there are certain charities that overtly support President Trump, and maybe they're following the rules, maybe they're not. It's up for interpretation. Charities aren't supposed to directly participate in politics. What's more, the organizations that make up the LEO network, which appear distinct, are in fact closely related. We took a special focus, which we thought was fair and and measured, on about the years between 2014 and 2017. And in that time period, there were, oh gosh, I I don't remember the exact number, but more, more than a dozen, many more than a dozen charities and other nonprofits that Leo that were linked together and then linked to Leo. And these groups operate in a way that's putatively independent. They seem to be independent when you go to look at their tax filings, which are public, by the way. Um, And yet when you look at the board members, you look at the phone numbers, the addresses that they have, the post office box drops that they use, the back office support, including accountants, you see that, in fact, it's the same people, the same addresses, and uh, the, the money that flows through them go to the same companies. It is super expensive to run this whole thing. Luckily, there's a ton of money behind it. 2014 to 2017 alone, Uh, These groups collected more than $250 million in donations. And remember, we even narrowed the number of groups just to be conservative here. And that money, sometimes known as dark money, was used to not only promote conservative policies, but also to promote and support conservative judicial nominees through advertising, as well as funding for other groups whose leaders would appear as experts on various TV shows and in articles, op-ed pieces, and so on. It's very, very difficult to piece this stuff together. It's very doable, but it effectively obscures, it effectively obscures the regular American's view of what exactly is coming down. That's just 2014 to 2017. Two Supreme Court justices and more than 200 federal judges later, donors to Leo's network are absolutely getting their money's worth under the Trump administration. We know that the fundraising absolutely has continued. New groups have come on board. Old groups have uh, have shuttered their doors. Same types of people uh, involved in them. But I have to say we have not done the analysis and the only new data that we have from the tax filings is from 2018. But a cursory review of it shows that that, that 250 million figure is probably uh, well over 300 million now. Leonard Leo seems to be really good at what he does. So 
How much is he getting paid? Well, we're not exactly sure how much Leonard Leo gets because some of the money went to a private firm that he owned, apparently. And because it's a private firm, Leo declined our request to find out how much he made. We know that he's, he's very, very well paid. At the time we were looking uh, at his network, uh, he was receiving uh, more than 400000 in annual compensation from the Federalist Society, according to tax filings. In 2016, a group called the Catholic Association paid him 120000 for management consulting. The only other employer that we could find at the time was something called the BH Group, which registered in 2016. And that firm was registered to do business by a law firm that's also involved in other nonprofits in the network, very active group in Virginia. So we couldn't find out a lot uh, about the BH Group because it's a private company, but we do know that it received $4 million from one of the key nonprofits in the LEO network called the Judicial Crisis Network, and another group called the Judicial Education Project, and a third nonprofit called the Wellspring Committee. And all of those groups are otherwise connected to LEO. We don't know how much of that $4 million went to LEO, but in the tax filings, those three groups describe the payments as consulting, research, and public relations fees. At a minimum, Leo is making half a million dollars a year. All that money makes for quite a fancy man. He wears beautiful suits um, that seem um, very, very expensive. He is said to enjoy fine wines and, and fine dining. He lives very, very well. At the end of our reporting, or near the end of our reporting, he and his family bought a, uh, they live in McLean, but they bought a $3.3 million summer home with 11 bedrooms on the coast of Maine. Leo and his wife got the mansion in Northeast Harbor, literally the place where the Rockefellers have a summer home, at a discount. According to the Portland Press-Herald, that's Portland, Maine, the Leos paid $3.3 million for the home. Sure, but that $3.3 million was nearly a million less than the home's appraised value. The sellers, heirs to a giant chemical fortune, are members of a thousand-year-old Catholic order, the Knights of Malta. Leo is also a member. Seriously. Here's Robert O'Hara. And it's just very interesting to me that you can work for nonprofits and become so wealthy. He's very, very smart, but he's a little uh, reporter shy when it comes to investigative reporters. He did talk to a colleague of ours for a documentary. And when uh, the colleague started asking tough questions, as you can see in a video that uh, video documentary that, that the Post published, he becomes very, very uncomfortable and wants to frame himself naturally as uh, someone that's an intellectual who's essentially, you know, sharing ideas in a very classical sense. He doesn't want to talk about his activism and the kind of behind the scenes role that he's been playing all these years. Leo told the Washington Post that he doesn't want to talk about money in politics, that he prefers to inhabit a realm of ideas but he seems to be very good at deriving wealth from this realm of ideas. And there's a tension here that goes beyond material wealth. 
Leo's activity in the realm of ideas has a very not-abstract impact on all of us. I mean, the Leonard Leo imprint is, um, is, is very clear on the Supreme Court. Uh, similarly, across the United States, every vacancy uh, pretty much uh, has a Federalist Society connection, or every, every judge appointed by Trump, I should say, um, has had a Federalist Society connection. And it's really quite extraordinary to think about the impact that's going to have on the law as we go forward as a country. Well, the country itself is getting more diverse. The country itself is getting more progressive. The courts are going in the opposite direction. The opposite direction. Probably most of America doesn't want to go back 100 years. I think there's a few things that uh, I can assert that we know, that uh, we in general know. One of them is that uh, the conservative movement represents a minority of Americans. It's largely white, it's largely religious, and it has not been successful at inclusion, and in fact, in many cases, has rejected it. We have a president who's the, the, favor, the favorite of the conservative movement, who, as everyone knows by now, refused to turn his back um, on racist white supremacist movements. That's very troubling. The conservative movement itself has actively rejected, aggressively rejected gay marriage, even the notion that there are lesbians, gays, bisexuals, transgendered people. So uh, yes, they represent a minority. The movement is filled with very, very bright people who have concluded that their way, the old fashioned way, traditional values, traditional court values are the right values for the country notwithstanding their minority status in these changing demographics. Leo has, for the most part, succeeded in transforming the judiciary, which is one of three branches of government. Remember Schoolhouse Rock? It's the legislative, the executive, and the judicial. And what is happening to the judicial today will impact us for the rest of our lives. The only thing that the Senate has really done, it's continuing to do actually right now, every time they meet practically, they confirm more judges. Um, and uh, it is, um, if if there's anything that we, I mean, there are a lot of things we'll remember this Trump administration for, I suppose, but the legacy that we will certainly be living with for a long time is these judges. Leonard Leo is at the head of a well-funded regressive movement that is transforming an entire branch of government. And these people aren't elected, so we can't just vote them out of office. What does that mean for the people who litigate the cases that determine the rights we have? We're going into the courtroom after this. Leonard Leo presents himself as a gentleman philosopher, caught up in the world of ideas. But the decisions meted out by the court have an enormous real-life impact on all of us. Chase Strangio is a lawyer who's gone all the way to the Supreme Court. My name is Chase Strangio, and I am the Deputy Director for Transgender Justice with the ACLU's LGBT and HIV Project. And I litigate trans rights cases in courts around the country and do legislative advocacy, organizing, and public education with a focus on justice for transgender people. Strangio's job is like law and order times a million. 
So for the past few years, we have been litigating a case on behalf of a transgender woman named Amy Stevens, who was fired from her job just because she was transgender. And the case made its way through the court system all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States. And in October of 2019, the case was argued with two other cases. And the court was essentially asked the question whether it was legal under federal law to fire someone just for being LGBTQ. And then in June of 2020, the court ruled six to three that the federal prohibition on sex discrimination prohibits discrimination against an employee just for being LGBTQ. So this was an incredible landmark ruling for LGBTQ people to ensure that we have legal protections across the country under existing federal law. The set of cases Strangio is describing are often referred to as Bostock, which is short for Bostock versus Clayton County. And the result, workplace protections for LGBTQ people, is one of the very real-world results of this realm of ideas rigmarole. I think there's so many levels in which we can see the the impact of the decision in, in positive ways, whether it's lower court cases already, um, you know, allowing individuals to move forward with their claims because of the decision. Um, I hear from LGBTQ people every day who are facing discrimination, not just in employment, um, who, who felt a sense of empowerment from the decision, feeling like they finally had a, a hook to fight back when they didn't have state level protections or, or even just having an awareness that they have these protections under federal law has been transformative for people. But why are people having to go to court to fight for their rights in the first place? The challenge in our democratic system is that not all of the branches always function in the ways that they were intended. And so it can be really difficult to um, pass protections for uh, pass explicit protections, I should say, for groups that have been historically excluded from the democratic process or historically faced discrimination by the majority. And that's where the courts can come in and the judiciary can come in as an important you know, backstop to majoritarian discrimination against you know, disfavored um, minority groups. And the realities in the United States Congress for many years have been that it's incredibly difficult to get expansive civil rights protections passed. And it's been incredibly difficult to ensure through ballot and other, you know, things that are considered to be the direct democratic process that we've been able to protect groups of people like LGBTQ people, um, like immigrants, um, like people of color who are facing, you know, multiple forms of violence and discrimination. And the judiciary is the place where we're supposed to at least have a check on those sort of majoritarian impulses to exclude, discriminate, and enact violence. And and so while we could go to Congress, and we have gone to Congress over and over, seeking explicit protections for LGBTQ people, we have been unsuccessful in getting robust civil rights le- legislation passed over you know the past many years. And the courts have been the place where we've been able to secure protections, both under the Constitution um, and in the context of Bostock, under the statutes that already exist. 
And that's been a critically important way that people have been able to protect their rights. And certainly we will continue to go to Congress, continue to go to legislative bodies, to continue to vote for executives that have, uh, you know, progressive minded impulses to expand protections. But the judiciary is a critical backstop against the discrimination that we might face in those other branches. And in the context of Bostock, the judiciary did its job. They interpreted the law as the law was written. They applied legal principles fairly and ensured that LGBTQ people were protected. The problem is court decisions don't permanently protect people. That's why something like Roe v.ersus Wade, which legalized abortion, is still being fought over nearly 50 years later. I'm incredibly concerned about the stability uh, of, you know, all the legal protections that we've gained through the courts over the past several decades, whether that's, you know, the legal protections for access to reproductive health care and abortion through Roe versus Wade, whether those are legal protections through interpretations of the Constitution to protect people's rights to vote, or whether those are the protections that LGBT people have been able to achieve as LGBTQ people as we see a very rapidly changing judiciary, a federal judiciary that is inclined to roll back civil rights protections to uh, infringe on people's uh, fundamental rights. And so I think that as critical as some Supreme Court wins have been for the LGBTQ community over the past 10 years. You know, when you see the changing composition of the judiciary, uh, it's incredibly easy to imagine uh, those things being rolled back. The judiciary uh, is only one avenue and it's precarious. And so we will continue to ensure that we tee up the fights and that we litigate in the courts. Um, But we have to protect um, people's access to the ballot. We have to protect the legislative process and we have to protect the integrity of the judiciary um, in order to ensure that people um, can continue to enjoy the legal protections that we've gained in the courts and that we can expand beyond them. After the passing of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, President Trump nominated Leonard Leo and Federalist Society anointed religious extremist Amy Coney Barrett to Ginsburg's former seat. It's still unclear if she'll end up getting confirmed. But if she does get confirmed, Leonard Leo will be responsible, in part, for five out of nine Supreme Court justices. Justice Ginsburg, for all Americans, was someone to admire. But her death may result in an almost permanent shift in the ideological composition of the court, dealing what some see as a decisive blow to our democracy. And that's not what comes to mind when you hear the phrase checks and balances. I mean, I think in general, this is a moment to really ask ourselves, you know, why were the systems set up as they were? Who were they designed to serve? And when you think about our constitution and the systems that it put in place, um, you know, it was founded at a time when one of the operating principles was the goal of maintaining chattel slavery, which is the literal ownership of human beings. And it was at a time when only property owning Uh, white men were seen as full citizens. And that is the system that we continue to live under. And as we see, um, you know, how it has evolved over uh, hundreds of years and generations to continue to serve those same groups that were designed to benefit from it from the start, I think we have to ask ourselves, what 
kind of vision for justice might we try to build in the future and one that is not beholden to the systems as they currently are constituted? I mean, when, when Justice Ginsburg died and it felt like, for many people, it felt like democracy died with her. If a single human being is holding that much power in a system that is designed, at least on paper, to be about checks and balances and uh, majority and, and, and sort of the ability to influence uh, representative democracy through the electorate, then we have to really ask ourselves, is that what our system was intended to do? Or is it serving to do that? Or is it just serving the same interests that it served from um, the founding? So I think this is an opportunity for us to ask ourselves as individuals, as advocates, what does justice mean? What might it look like? And do we need to reevaluate the systems that we have? I'm not necessarily saying that we eradicate the federal judiciary as we know it tomorrow, but I do think we should be asking ourselves, how does it work? Who does it benefit? And what might we build it as an alternative? For now, it's a system America is stuck with. And Caroline Fredrickson isn't giving up. We cannot give up. The judiciary is too important. And I'd say there, for one thing, what is incredibly important is that the left start to care as much about the judiciary as the right has cared and invest the same kind of energy and political resources. We have been passive for way too long. Uh, judges will continue to retire. New vacancies will arise. We have to fill them. We have to have a plan and we have to apply it with rigor. We have to have our lists ready. We have to have people ready to go and we need to make it a political priority. So I don't see, you know, Donald Trump's judges being evicted with the kind of speed we might like to see, but I I do think there will be other vacancies. There also is a need in certain court systems for more judges. So courts can be expanded, but any vacancies that arise need to be filled. Um I you know, the the consequences are severe, but they don't have to be debilitating and permanent, as long as we actually start to take the lessons to heart, learn from the right, and make it a priority uh, to fill judgeships on the court um, and to ensure that our courts are not a handmaiden to the anti-democratic, dark money, conservative legal movement. Chase Strangio isn't giving up either. There are incredibly well-organized forces, as we've you know discussed and alluded to, um, to take our to take our joy, to take our rights, to take things away, to cast us as as deviants, to cast us as outsiders, to cast us as undeserving of um, just the most basic human needs and civil legal protections. Um, and those forces are going to courts and going to legislative bodies, trying to pass laws um, to, you know, codify these positions uh, in ways that would really impact our ability to achieve sort of just full civic inclusion and then also sort of materially necessary survival goods. And the counterpoint to that is our own movements, is our own work together. And since our opponents aren't stopping, you know, we can't either. And I think one of the things that I say often is that no matter what, I'm not going anywhere. Um, because there's so much fighting to be done, and no matter what happens, with whether it's the whether it's an election, whether it's the way that the judiciary is being transformed, whether it's uh, the way the systems have failed us, that 
we have power in the the building that we do with each other. And so, you know, that work is going to continue and, and, and I will always stick around and be a part of it. And I know that so many others will too. And that gives me hope in a time where, you know, there's a lot of despair. If Amy Coney Barrett is appointed to the Supreme Court, Leonard Leo will have had a hand in five out of nine Supreme Court justices. John Roberts, Samuel Alito, Neil Gorsuch, and Brett Kavanaugh. Justices who will serve for the rest of their lives. That's not even mentioning the federal bench to which President Trump has appointed hundreds of judges. These people, some of whom are in their 30s and 40s, will also serve for the rest of their lives. Until today, you may not have heard of Leonard Leo. Even though Leonard Leo is someone whose activity may have a bigger impact on American democracy than most presidents. There's no silver lining here. And I don't have any positive takeaway. In the first presidential debate between Joe Biden and Donald Trump, Trump, in response to a question about Amy Coney Barrett and the Supreme Court, said that elections have consequences. Damn right they do. The president nominates and the Senate confirms unelected judges who serve for life. If you care about this, think about it when you vote. And Leonard Leo? He's savvy, smart, powerful, and young. Born in 1965, Leo will be with us for quite some time, and so will his judges. I want to leave you with something to think about. Leo isn't alone, and he's just one part, albeit a very important part, of a system. A system by which the wealthy shape the politics, the abstract ideas that structure the lives we live. Here's Robert O'Hara. One of the things I think is of great interest is how do wealthy conservative donors, for example, exercise their influence? Well, they do it anonymously by giving lots and lots of money to a growing number of nonprofits. Those nonprofits are then marshaled on the left and the right to try to bring force to bear. And the donors on the left and the right are trying to get something for their money. They're not giving their money away for nothing. And so rather than just focusing on one person, Leonard Leo, and trying to take stock uh, of a calibrated sense of how much power he has, I think the more important question is, how many Leonard Leos are there out there? Who's funding them? And what is it that those people want? On the next episode of Who Is, we'll look at someone with a very different path to power, who, if things don't go Donald Trump's way, might be in line for the presidency. Senator and vice presidential nominee Kamala Harris. A sincere thank you to our guests, Caroline Fredrickson, a senior fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice and distinguished visitor at Georgetown Law, Robert O'Hara, an investigative reporter at The Washington Post, and Jay Strangio, Deputy Director for Transgender Justice at the American Civil Liberties Union. Who Is is a podcast from Now This. I'm Sean Morrow, writer and senior producer. Michael McDowell is our producer. Laura Tillman is our associate producer. Editing and mixing by Will Stanton. Production support from Pedro Alvira, Rob Baynard, and Amanda Earle. Ron Flats is our senior producer. Our executive producers are Nancy Hahn, Brett Kushner, Sarah Frank, and Mangesh Hadakuder. And now this, Tina Exaros is our chief content officer, and Ethan Stephanopoulos is our president. Who is the podcast season two? New episodes out every Tuesday. And listen up. Season three is on. We'll be back in 2021.